Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everyone and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic and today it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to talk to Michel Simon. Michel is a historical figure, a legendary figure in film criticism. For many, many years he was the editor of the French cinema magazine Positif. Uh, you'll have to excuse any of my mispronunciations as I go through this, but um, Michelle's English easily makes up for my terrible, my terrible pronunciation of French. It was a real honour to talk to him. Uh, we talked via telephone, and I recorded uh, in a little bit of a sort of ramshackle fashion. But I think the quality of the conversation makes up for the uh, quality or otherwise of the recording devices uh, used. At the very beginning of the conversation, we were we were talking about Terence Malick, and it sort of starts, as I am wont to do, in medias res. So that's what that's the subject under, under consideration as the podcast begins. If you enjoy the podcast, and believe me, this is one of the best ones, <laughs> so you're guaranteed to enjoy it, please like, subscribe, and spread as far and wide as you can on social media. It really does. I can't tell you how much it helps to boost the listenership uh, when people um, retweet me, or they tweet something, or they share it on Facebook, or they put it out there in any fashion that they feel they that they can it's a real help and i really 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 truly appreciate it okay and you can also follow me on twitter if you don't already at dr john t d r j o n t y but before you do any of that stuff please enjoy the conversation I went to, to a dinner after the screening 
and it was very warm and very supportive of positive magazine. It said it's the torch song of cinephilia. You were you were quite a young man at the time, I believe. In seventy four, I was in Los Angeles, and uh, at that time, I it was not too difficult to to reach him apparently, uh, because he gave me immediately an appointment. Uh, seventy four, I was. Uh, 36 or something like that. Yes, uh, I was born in 38, so you can count that was 36, something like that. What was, what was he like, sort of, as a, uh, uh, when you, on your first impressions? Well, he was, uh, you know, like most great directors, he was rather simple, I and mean, Kubrick was not different. He was uh, friendly and talkative did not shun the questions, uh, answered my questions, and uh, just a decent person, which you, you can see in his cinema. I mean, he's a, he's a humanist. You started writing for uh, Positif in, uh, like, your early 20s, right? Yes, I was, uh, I think it was in, uh, in uh, 60, 63, something like that, when I... Uh, I was 25, I sent an article on the trial by Orson Welles, which had been very much criticized in the press. And uh, I, I like to, I like to challenge you know, I like to, not that I'm the, uh, kind of uh, saving the, the people who are in danger, but I, I, I love polemics and I, I am always shocked by sometimes by some attitudes in the press towards some films or directors. And uh, almost all the people I wrote about have been controversial people who have not been accepted immediately. Uh, considered that, like Abhishek Pongvera Setakul has always got unanimous applause from the press. You know, I would not write a book on Abhishek Pongvera Setakul, but people like Kubrick, like Kazan, like Losi, like Rosie, like all these people or even Jen Kantian, they, they have been challenged very often. I mean, they got to tremendous successes, but also sometimes they were heavily criticized or people did not get what they wanted to do. So that's my, my point of view. When my first article was in defense of the trial, uh, which had been attacked as a betrayal of Kafka and, and a bad Orson Welles movie, in many quarters, I don't say that it was unanimous. There are people who defended the trial, including Positive, before I wrote this piece, which I sent them. And I thought the piece would never be published because already they had done a 15 pages roundtable on the trial, mostly defending the film. But they found my piece sufficiently interesting to reproduce it again, to publish it again, to publish it in the, in the next issue of Positive. So that's how I got into the magazine. And two years later, I was a member of the editorial board, which I have always been part of. Though there is no editor-in-chief in positive, it's a democratic. Uh, I don't say that everybody is equal. Some people are more equal than others, as you, the saying is. But definitely not a single person can decide of the, of the cover of positive or the content of positive. It's always a vote, it's always a democratic discussion, which I think is rather unique in the publications of cinema. Ah, sure. Um, it, it maybe encourages a sort of less doctrinaire in approach. Well, it is not doctrinaire in the sense that, that it does not follow an intellectual trend which is uh, dominant, like semiology at a certain point, or Marxism, or Maoism at another point, or, you know, or... Uh, linguistics at another time it's uh, we never followed the fashion the intellectual fashion of the day and so in that sense we were never doctrinaire but also at the same time positive is not uh, like for instance sight and sound which is a very good magazine but which is uh, not does not really have a line uh, which reflects more the mood of the day without being doctrinaire either no positive has started really as a left-wing magazine in the early days in, in Lyon, when it was published for the first time. It was a provincial place, and I think uh, we were away. I was there, of course, I was 
I was 12 years old when Positive started, mm. or 14 year old, so I was not part of the magazine and I was living in Paris. But it was done by a group of uh, left-wing people who were against the Algerian war, who defended uh, progressive directors like John Houston, like Andre Vaida, like uh, like people like Jean Vigo, who had, was dead, of course, a long time ago, but like Bunuel, people uh, like Kurosawa and so on. So, very little, very quickly it came to Paris and uh, there was a second second group that joined the first group which made, was made of surrealist writers, members of the surrealist group like Robert Benayoun and Gérard Legrand and, uh, and people like that. And of course you cannot say that uh, the surrealists were not committed. It was really uh, an intellectual and artistic uh, orientation, which was very combative, very, uh, very polemical, and they, among others, and they were uh, for imagination, for dreams, for evolution, for a lot of qualities that uh, the surrealists share. And positive was that was the second uh, tendency in positive. So I would call it. It's not doctrinaire, but it's definitely committed. I meant that it, it was not doctrinaire because it had that democratic sort of structure to it. Yes, I mean, we, we, we were always anti-totalitarian, uh, anti-Stalinist, anti-Nazi, anti-Fascist, anti... We were Democrats of the left. What was your pre Positif uh, career. Uh, did, did you? Were you, you were already no, writing. When I, when I was when I wrote for Positif, I was twenty five. So my career before was very limited. I, I wrote in a in a small publication from the Sorbonne. Uh, a number of, uh, of cinephiles, uh, film buffs, uh, who were twenty two, twenty three, who were doing uh, postgraduate studies and who founded a magazine called Cinema Text. Cinema text, the pun on cinema tech and text, cinema text, and there were maybe 12 issues. They were really tight, they were not even printed. They were sold in the film clubs of the Sorbonne, and a number of people who started there became well known in criticism. There were also some older people among the groups who were not students anymore, who were older writers. And uh, that's where I started to write about five or six articles uh, before I joined uh, the positive stuff. Did you have any sort of um, mentors amongst the, those people or any people who you were reading who were influencing your, your own writing? Well, I, I was a reader of Positive and Cahiers du Cinéma. I, 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 I liked Cahiers du Cinéma uh, quite well. Uh, I, I was against their political slant, because at the time the Cahiers was quite right-wing and conservative. I mean, in their politics, they were not conservative in their taste. They, they certainly broke grounds like positive. They discovered new directors, they were child. But on the whole, uh, their, their politics were rather conservative and right-wing. I mean, even people like Frédéric Robert was a royalist, extreme right. Uh, Truffaut was a friend of, uh, of uh, Lucien Robatet, who had been condemned to life sentence during the after the occupation for his for his books against the Jews and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, Jean-Luc Godard was not very was certainly not very far from his future uh, commitment in politics, or maybe not so far because Maoism is also a kind of totalitarianism. So. Uh, but I read Positive and Cahier. I, I was leaning more on Positive because of their moral uh, values and also because of their interest in painting and poetry and, and other arts. Uh, Cahier was much more purely cinematographic. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed the two magazines, but I, I sent my piece to Positive because I, I felt closer to them because of surrealism and political commitments. As you went on with your career in Positif, you would uh, be interviewing some of the most important, or actually the most important filmmakers of the following decades. Who was the first filmmaker who you encountered who you, you had an in-depth interest in? Well, you know, I was uh, very interested in, uh, of course, in the new 
cinema, not, not particularly uh, an admirer of the early Chabrol. I, I became a fan of some of the later Chabrol, but the first films of Chabrol did not capture my imagination. Uh, the first Robert, Le Cine du Lyon, was not a event for me so much. I enjoyed Darky Godard, but uh, I was more uh, attracted by Alain René, by Agnès Varda, by people like that, by Chris Marker. And I was more even fascinated by the Italian cinema of the time. I, I thought more highly of Antonioni and Fellini and, and Visconti and Francesco Rosi. They, their films of uh, the late 60s, late 50s and early 60s seemed to me much more important than uh, Le Beau Serge or even Les Quatre Coups. But Hiroshima Monabo was definitely, for me, a landmark world cinema. I, I thought it was a, an extraordinary event in the, in the way of shooting a film. For me, it was a revolution like, uh, like Potemkin or like Citizen Kane. Hiroshima Monabo was definitely, for me, a film that broke total new grounds, more than Abu Dussouf. I love as well that you mentioned Francesco Rosi, because he's uh, he's one of my favorite Italian filmmakers as well. Salvatore Giuliano, in in particular. Well, I love Salvatore Giuliano. I mean, like Hiroshima Monamo, it seemed to me a break a breakthrough, something that had never been done before. And in fact, that was not done very much after that. You know, I mean, Costa Gavras is much more uh, uh, known today than Francesco Rosi, but I think. If you compare Z and Salvatore Giuliano, Z is a nice little film, uh, very courageous and uh, to the point, but there is no comparison between Salvatore Giuliano and Z in terms of aesthetic achievement. Yes, absolutely. And in his, I mean, all of his uh, hands over the city and Womani contra Womani, there's a real, a real breadth there that I feel he's, he's a little bit underrated compared to people like... Uh, Fellini and some of his more illustrious co-directors. Yes, uh, yes uh, because uh, his, uh, his range is the political film, which has not been so popular really. Uh, I mean, and Fellini is a genius, but I think Rosie is an extraordinary director. But to go back to my career, to my beginnings, uh, I, my first real, not a book, but it was a very, very long, uh, long, uh, small book, which I published in, uh, I think it was in uh, 67 or 68, was a book on Eric von Stroheim, because let's say that uh, my, my discovery of cinema had three steps. The first step was to look at films for the actors uh, and the genre. I loved Errol Flynn, I loved Alfred uh, Bogart, I loved uh, Lancaster, I loved, I loved uh, Sophia Loren or whatever, or, uh, Gardner and so on. So I loved actors and I loved, <coughs> I loved genre like westerns, thrillers, uh, musical comedies. That was my first motivation to go to see a film. It's a genre or it's an actor or an actress. The second step was uh, in the mid 50s uh, when I was 17, 16, 17s. It was the breakthrough of auteur. So I discovered the auteur. Uh, tradition, the new tradition that is Antonioni, Bergman, Fellini, people like that, Bresson, and uh, I discovered that you could have a signature and that the director was the master of the craft, and then that was my second step. So it was first popular cinema, then second auteur films, and the third step when I was studying uh, near the Cinematic Francaise Rue Dune, uh, I went to attend the Cinematheque around 1957-58 and then uh, I would discover the Mossadon film. Mm. That was a big shock. I discovered Keaton, I discovered, of course I knew Chaplin, but that was the exception. But I discovered Dovchenko, Eisenstein, uh, Stroheim, uh, Keaton and so on, and all these people, uh, Trier, uh, Murnau, Fritzland. And I wrote a very, very long essay, on, uh, a small book on Eric von Stroheim. That was my first attempt at doing a monograph on a director. And then there was Kazan, which I had a chance to meet uh, for an interview in 1964, just after America, America. Uh, and we met uh, with Roger Tailleur, a great writer, 
who has written uh, the best book on Kazan. And with Roger Taillot, we met Kazan in a small hotel near the Madeleine in Paris. We did an interview with him, which was published in, in Positive. And Kazan appreciated the fact that though we were left-wing, um, definitely anti-McCarthyist and so on, that we paid attention to his cinema and that we, we were interested in the, his contradictions and we also asked him about what he had done and so on. Then I met Kazan again in Venice in 1970 when he was uh, accompanying Barbara Loden, his wife, who was presenting Wanda, a wonderful zombie film. And I said to Kazan, why would you like to do an interview book with me? Uh, because of course at the time there was only one book that was of that type was the Hitchcock Truffaut a book, and I he knew it, of course, I said, I would like to sit with you for a few days, a few, maybe a week or 10 days, and every day discuss three or four hours, and uh, we would uh, talk about all your career. And he said, why not come to my house in Connecticut? We are, I have a house in the country. You can stay there with your wife, uh, there with a small house near mine, and then you can uh, we can work on that book and... The British Film Institute accepted to publish it. It was Kazan on Kazan, my first book. Again, it was a challenge because Kazan was uh, despised by a number of people, though uh, the true cinephile loved his work. I mean, the, the films like uh, Wild River and Splendor in the Glass. America, America was quite well received by the critics, but definitely not White River or Splendor in the Glass, which were great films. And uh, so I was very interested to talk uh, with him about, uh, of course, acting and about politics and about his films, his origins and so on. So that was my first book, uh, which was very well received and opened my way to other books. That idea as well of giving giving somebody a sensitive, uh, a sympathetic listening to seems to be something which is vital to your art. To, to sort of producing these books, which which go so deeply into a filmmaker's work. Yes, well, I mean, they are my books are very different. In fact, I mean, some of my books are really purely essays, right? Purely uh, monographs on, on uh, essays on American cinema and so on. Uh, others are uh, an interview book from beginning to end, which we, which I did in, in ten days or fifteen days like the book with Joseph Rossi or the book with Ilya Kazan, even the book on, with Francesco Rossi, which are done with the back, back projection. In fact, I, uh, they are 50 year old or 60 year old and we, we go through all their career at a certain point. And then there is a third category of books, which are interview books, which gather all the interviews I have done from the beginning with the director. And then they, they, became, they become a kind of anthology of all the interviews from uh, not a, a distant perspective, but step by step, which is very interesting because sometimes directors forget about their film. I'm sure if I interview Jane Campion now about Sweetie, maybe she would not be as talkative as she was when I interviewed her on her short films first, then on Sweetie, then on all the films that succeeded. You know, so my book on Jane Campion, on Kubrick, on Bowman, are done, uh, like on Galopoulos, they are done really from scratch. They have, they have started when the director started, and they went on and on as I met them every film after that. So it's quite a different concept of an interview group than the interviews where you, you do a chronological survey of what they have done at a certain age. It must be interesting for the filmmakers as well to sort of have, sort of stop for a moment and have that perspective on their own careers. Yes, I mean, you know, I believe, you know, in the, in the relationship between directors and and, and, and critics. Uh, Antonopoulos quite a few times asked me to come to Athens to see his new film before Cannes mm. and to talk with him about the film, to have a fresh first reaction by a man who knows his work, who is of course sympathetic, who can be critical, but he wanted to know my feelings. And I was like a sparring partner. Mm. I was uh, I was trying with him like a boxer 
before the fight, who makes a kind of fight with uh, another person in order to train for the future meetings. So I did that quite often. Uh, I saw the go between before Cannes, and I said to Lose that the film was a masterpiece. When the company and GM turned down the film, finally abandoned the film, they did not understand what he was talking about. And they sold it to Columbia, I think, uh, or to one of I don't remember which company, but there was a change of company. But I saw the film and I was very confident. That was three weeks before Cannes, and I said to Lucy, it will be the best film in Cannes. And he finally won the Golden Palm. So that <laughs> happened you know, quite often in my life with Francesco Rosi also to see his films before, or with John Bowman. Not as a privilege, really, but because they knew that I understood their films. Um, maybe more better than others, not better than everybody, but better than others. And they were confident in my reaction, and it would help them to uh, rationalize about their film. Did you did you ever have sort of like a, a major disagreement with a filmmaker who was your was your subject? Well, there was uh, there was a number of filmmakers that I uh, I supported very strongly, and I stopped uh, when I was very disappointed by their evolution. I mean, for instance. Here, Michelle mentioned a specific filmmaker who I've uh, cut out. Um, uh, as you could hear, he didn't want that part recorded, so I've cut that out. And the conversation continues with some more general uh, observations of people whose careers have gone gone up and down a little bit. There are people like Frank and I, uh, I did uh, with Bertrand Tavernier a very huge interview, of 40 pages in positive with Frank and I. At the time of I Walk the Line or the Gypsy Mob, and I admired very much his talent in the American, new American cinema. And then he lost his way completely. Uh, and then I liked maybe one or two films later. His last one, which was, I think, Rush to War, uh, quite an extraordinary film on Linda Johnson, but it was a resurrection. But I, Carlos Sara, I was a big fan of Carlos Sara in Spain. Uh, when he made these early films with his wife, but after that, uh, I thought he was repeating himself and not, you know. So there are a number of people for whom I was, with whom I was disappointed. Uh, there are also directors that I I love, like uh, Joseph Rose, and some films I was disappointed by, like Les Routes du Sud or Patrick, uh, which were not major achievements. Mm. So I think I can be critical also of the directors. I was never satisfied with Kubrick, for instance. Uh, that's for sure. You were never satisfied, like with his films, or, or with him as a subject. No, I was uh, with his films. I mean, mm. I, I was always satisfied with Kubrick as a, as a human being, as a, as a, as, a, as an analyst of his own films. I think he was a brilliant, intelligent person. But I, I was I was satisfied also with his films. I never saw a film of Kubrick where I came out and said, "My God, what happened to him?" You know, mm. uh, never. I, I I was defending even his films against other people because Kubrick's films have been very controversial. Every time he made a film, there was terrible reviews in New York among the intelligentsia, among the Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael and, and people like that. They just this detested Kubrick, and I was a champion of Kubrick. I thought he was a genius. So that's that's okay. As I said earlier, I like the challenges discussing with you know Jane Campion who had some big successes with the press, like uh, the piano and like uh, an angel at my table. But there are many films of Jane Campion which were not unanimously received. Uh, Portrait of a Lady was very much criticized. There is even the great film about Keith. Oh, Bright Star, yes. Which got no prize in, in Cannes, which was dismissed uh, by some critics as academic. I thought it was uh, the best film ever done on a poet, etc., uh, etc. Et so uh, Holy Smoke was badly received. Uh, so so that's not a problem. I mean, I thought Jane Campion was misunderstood very often. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Oh, she's an idol and all right, and I think she deserves it. But people don't remember how much she was attacked. I'm sure they feel they're the same. When Monsieur Klein, one of his best films was shown in Cannes, it received no prize. It was heavily criticized, and it was booed even by some people. And Adam Delon did not come to, when he heard the reactions of some of the press, he did not come to, to Cannes. That's amazing as well that I always find it strange when people boo at, at Cannes because it's it's such a, a strange reaction because I've only just seen the film. I don't have the confidence to boo. Um, I, you know, I, want, I want a bit more time for the film to actually sink in. Yes, well, that's another subject to talk about Cannes. It would be a long interview. And, but, you know, there is another director I did not mention so far which I thought made his first three films were one of the most exceptional starting for a director is Jerry Schatzberg. I think that Portrait of Puzzle of a Downfall Child, Panic in Little Park, and Scarecrow, which got the golden, the golden palm. These three films in a row is one of the best achievements by any American director. There are very few American directors whose three first films are so wonderful. Even after that, he made some good films, uh, some even some brilliant films, but not on the level of these three first films. So I wanted to make a book about Charles Bergen and also a book which will include his photographs, because I think his, his photograph, photographs are some of the great photographs of the modern times. He's a great photographer as well as a great director. Yeah, I, I've, I've only recently discovered his work, and it's some of Al Pacino's best work as well. Yes. Panic in, in Needle Park in, in particular, but also Scarecrow, which I think Gene Hackman says is his, is his favourite film. Absolutely, that's what Gene Hackman said. And Scarecrow is really a great, uh, great uh, puzzle, and Scarecrow, and also Panic. Panic is a more simple film, but wonderfully realistic and harrowing. But Puzzle of a Downfall Child was dismissed in San Francisco when it was shown for the first time. Mm. And it's Pierre who really discovered the film, supported the film, brought it to France, where it became a, an important film. But Puzzle, you know, there was a stupid reaction of the critics who say it's a photographer's film because very often people cannot stand that a man has two or three talents because some of them have no talent at all. And they, they refuse to imagine that a director could be also a good photographer or a good writer or a good, you know, they want people to limit themselves to one talent. That's, that, that's so funny. That's like um, the Cohen brothers using a pseudonym for their editing credit because they don't want exactly. to put their names on the poster too many times. Exactly. Going back for a second to, to Kubrick, the, the book that you wrote on Kubrick, that was like a, a, the compilation of interviews you, you'd done for it of him through the years. Is that is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I was lucky enough. I think one of the one of the few people with Alexander Walker in England and Gene Phillips in America with the priest 
I was one of the very, very few critics that he met several times. Because critic gave few interviews, and most of the interviews he gave to one person, but not a second time. I think we were three people who were favorably favorably viewed by Kubrick, so that he, he I interviewed him four times, and I had very long conversations on the phone about various subjects, especially when he needed some advice. He was always asking questions, technical questions, personality questions, you know, uh, where he, where he could shoot this film, where what he should. If he if I knew a costume designer or about the cinemas in Paris where the film should, should open. I think I think it came because of my first interview with him on Clockwork Orange, and he was satisfied with my questions because I was a professor at the university, and I was not a typical journalist who sometimes are not very faithful to what the, the director says. He had been betrayed several times by journalists who did not send him back the transcript of the interviews, and he saw interviews which were published without his copyright. And he appreciated the fact that I was very serious with him and would send him the transcript so that he could make corrections. The second reason I think that he liked also because I was more of a cultural person who could speak with him about politics, painting, music, and other subjects, literature. So he felt comfortable, uh, I must say. That's maybe because I came from the university. Because Kubrick was a man who was very respectful of culture in general. And some of the questions he was asked were simply not very interesting for him. So he, he, he was talking with people like, as I said, with like Jim Phillips, like uh, Alexander Walker, like myself, and others. I'm not saying that I'm the only one they were. They, were, they are very good critics in, in the world. But he, he found it. He found my company likable. He liked to do the, he hated the interviews in general. Uh, he refused most interviews. And, uh, Alex, uh, Ken Adam told me that when he, he, he did a, uh, a, a collective interview on the Oran, Oran, or Clockwork Orange in London, uh, he came from his house 30, 30 miles from London and the car stopped three times because he threw up he vomited on the road because he was so tense about having to face 12 people who had microphones and interviewing him. So, you know, he, he hated this thing because I think he saw the complexity of his films and he thought that words were very difficult to express what you found in the images. You know, he, he, he made fun about that when he said, you know, I am not Leonardo da Vinci. But if Leonardo da Vinci had put under the Mona Lisa, she smiles because she's cheated on her husband this afternoon, you know, the, the, the painting would lose all its mystery. Mm. The, director, the director should not too much express himself about what he has done. Yeah, that, that seems like a, a sub, puts you in a very paradoxical position because you you want to interrogate them and talk to them about their interpretations, but at the same time respect that space. Yes, well, uh, you know, my questions are also uh, critical comments. So in a way, I, it's as, it is as if I was asking somebody to react to my review, to to see, am I right if I say that this and this and this? You know, am I right if uh, you feel Mr. Kubrick are always about the conflict between uh, reason and emotion, and that the reason is is submerged by emotion most of the time because Kubrick is Freudian. Uh, he's a Freudian and he believes that the, the pulses are stronger than the reasoning. Mm, mm. Which explains uh, Dr. Strangelove, which explains 2001, which explains a lot of his films, which are really about the battle between rationality and, and emotionalism and, and that uh, the id, the id is stronger than the, the superego. Mm. Would, would you have loved to have had a conversation with him about Eyes Wide Shut? No, no, it was impossible. No. Because, uh, he died. Uh, no, I mean, I yes, but... To, I would have loved to interview him right. about Eyes Wide Shut. And by the way, when I saw Eyes Wide Shut, I, I saw it, uh, the family invited me to, to finish, to do a new edition of my book, 
So I came to London to see the film before everybody, or well, not everybody, but before the press, uh, in his private uh, screening room in his manor. Uh, and uh, two days later, there was an official screening in London, uh, in Leicester Square, for the international press. There were about 100 journalists who came from all over Europe to see the film. And I remember that people were totally perplexed. They really did not know what to, to do with the film. They, they, were, they were embarrassed by what are they going to write. The film was so different as usual, of course, but even more different than usual of the normal Kubrick film uh, to make a kind of uh, uh, author, European author. He made his first film as a European director. All the other films were genre films. They were films, they were science fiction, horror, war film, uh, costume film. For the first time, he made a film like Max Ophuls or like uh, Antonioni or like whatever else. He made an auteur cinema film and people could not really understand what he was talking about. That was this idea of doing a schnitzer short story and to make a film about a couple in, uh, in New York, shot in Paris, in London. And they were embarrassed. Well, they were embarrassed perhaps as much as they were embarrassed by 2001. Mm. Mm. And when you, so when you're moving between uh, different directors and different um, f as as subjects for your books. Uh, what what is what is the sort of criteria or what is the the thing which makes you think this is a person I really want to sit down with and and do a book on? Well, I think uh, I think it has to do with the, the making of the film. Uh, you know, I think very often. I don't know about, uh, I read a lot of English and American criticism, but uh, I don't know how much it is like in France, but in France, if you read the reviews, uh, and sometimes the interviews, uh, especially the reviews, uh, it's like reviewing a novel. I mean, the, the writer speaks about the story, he speaks about the characters, uh, he speaks about the politics of the film, if there is any politics, or about the ideology, uh, and he makes a judgment on this criteria. But uh, you don't know if the film is brightly lit or in the dark. You don't know if it is, if it is made of 100 shots or 400 or 500 shots. It's very much edited, or on the contrary, there are long sequences without any editing. You, you don't know what uh, how the actors are playing exactly. You know, there are very pre very few precise descriptions of the style of the acting. Uh, you say wonderful uh, Tom Cruise, uh, excellent Nicole Kidman, but very few analysis of the way of the actor uh, plays. So, it, in fact, it's very much like reviewing a book, reviewing a novel. You don't have much intelligence of the craft of cinema. And I think the interviews should go towards this. They should go towards the origins of the film, the way the film was conceived, because we, this is a mystery. What was the role of the producer? What was the role of the co-writer? What was the role of the contribution of the actors, the contribution of the cameraman? This is a very collective work, even if the auteur is, a, in the best of cases, it's the director. But nevertheless, it's a collective effort. You don't ask a, a novelist to explain all this because a novelist has a pen or, not, uh, uh, or uh, not, no more a pen or he has a computer, mm. but he's so alone with his work. But in films, there are so many aspects, contributions, economic, artistic, technical, etc. And the second thing is that uh, you want to know more about the style, about the approach to the film. How does a director do? Does he talk many takes or one take? Why one take? Why 12 takes? Why 50 takes? And also about the lighting and about the references. Does he use photographs as references? Or, and what kind of photographs? What kind of painting and so on? So all this is food for the interview. And not only an interview. It's the same with actors. Actors, when you ask them questions about acting, they are wonderful. They, some, not everybody, not every actor, but some actors are extraordinarily eloquent about their craft. 
But if you ask them on the, about their mistresses or their wives or their children or their holidays or their food, what they eat, what they dress, I mean, it's a waste of time. It's not very interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you have is um, you, you've talked earlier about defending filmmakers and defending certain films. Um, do you feel that, like, history has been on your side? You've had the, the pleasure of seeing a film like The Trial, for instance, become con widely considered as one of Orson Welles' strongest films. Of course, of course. Um, you've been uh, defending films and filmmakers, and you've been proven to be on the right side of history, that, you know, Kubrick is now established as, you know, uh, um, an almost untouchable classic filmmaker. Um, similarly, the trial is that you defended in your first postif a positive uh, article you um you know is now really widely regarded so is that quite satisfying seeing seeing everybody well, yes i understand your question now it's difficult for me to judge you know my position in film criticism or my history in film criticism uh, because i'm not i'm not it's not me for me to, to judge what, what i want to say is that i retrospectively now it's about 45 years more, more than that, or it's 50, 50, more than 50 years of film criticism, or 55 years. Uh, I am not ashamed of the books I wrote. Not, I'm not talking only about the quality of the film, the books, but also about the, the people I interviewed, or the people I wrote about. I think uh, the Darden brothers, or Angelopoulos, or, uh, or people like that. Uh, even lesser known, but, uh, of course, those say Kubrick, Kazan, and Kubrick, and all these people, and Rosie, and so on. I think they are, and Jane Campion, I think they are established, uh, and my choices were not, uh, were not so bad, I think. And the second thing is that, of course, there are people I admire tremendously, but that I never did a book on, because either I felt I was not competent enough about their cultural background, for instance. I'm a great admirer of uh, Yi Dong in Korea, a great admirer of Wu Xiaoxian and Edward Yang in Taiwan, an admirer of Wong Kar Wai in Hong Kong, an admirer of Oshima and, uh, in, uh, in Japan, and others, Imamura. But I, I felt I don't speak the language. I don't know very much, as much the culture as I do the French or Italian or American culture or British culture. So I would not go into that territory. I mean, but I would have loved to do books on these people. Uh, I did an interview book with Konchalovsky uh, recently because uh, I knew Konchalovsky very well for a long time. I admired him first film, which I saw in Venice, the first teacher in 1965. And he, he was the only director who called me and said, I want you to do a book with me. All mm -hmm. the other books were on my initiative. I said, why not? You know, I know your work. I think you've done fantastic films. I love Russian culture. Uh, I know all your films. So I would gladly do it. So I went to Moscow. And I spent a week with Kontrolovsky talking in French. He speaks fluent French, fluent English, fluent, fluent Italian, fluent German. And I did this interview book, which is the first interview book with Kontralovsky, and I'm very proud of it. But that's really an exception. All the other directors are either French-speaking French directors, English, Italian, uh, because I know their, their culture, or Greek, in the case of Angelopoulos. Mm. They speak fluent French, and it go, does go through an interpreter. I never did a book with an interpreter. All my books were done with the language of the, of the director. Mm. And, and the second type of film books that, that I did not do were books that are so numerous on the director that I would not think of doing another Hitchcock book, another Orson Welles book, etc., etc., because there are so many books on these people that I felt they have been really very much analyzed and studied. And I was, for me, it was more of a challenge to do books about people on on whom nothing or almost nothing had been written when I did the book. The Kubrick book was one of the very, very few books 
that was done on Kubrick. Now there are 150 books or 200 books on Kubrick. You see, that's the two reasons. Either I did not know enough the culture of, uh, of some directors, or Clara uh, Stanley, for instance, is another example that I uh, greatly admired, and some East European directors. When I did a book, a collective interview book with Milos Forman and Polonsky and uh, and the final sort of director, the director that I was thinking about as well recently, because she's had a film, The Power of the Dog, come out, was Jane Campion. Um, and I think they've just re-released the edition of Campion on Campion in France, if I'm not mistaken. Well, there is no book like that on Jane Campion in English. There are, there are university books, good ones, but there is not a single book like a book on Kubrick on Jane Campion. Do you know the book? Uh, yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's excellent. I, I, and I really admire her as a filmmaker. Yes, because it is quite beautifully illustrated and she collaborated more on, on this book than any director I worked with. Uh, she gave a big number of uh, rare photographs, documents of her childhood and so on. So I, I'm very happy about the book because she was very helpful. And, uh, and also there is an interview with every film she has made. You know, it's very complete. It's like my book on Bowman. Uh, there is a new edition that came out last two years ago or last year uh, on Bowman, which which is complete. The first the first edition uh, stopped at Emerald Forest, I think, and uh, all the films he has made afterwards are in the new edition. So it's almost a double page of the original. Right, of course, because he had he had a long a long career after that as well. Of course, of course, mm. there are great films like The General, for instance. Mm, mm, absolutely, absolutely. Was was there ever a, a a director who you wished you'd been able, you'd had the opportunity, um, but didn't fall in any, either of those two categories that you've already spoken about, but that for some reason you just couldn't you couldn't get a, a hold of. on Kazan, on Monkey Beach, on Billy Wilder, uh, on Bowman. Uh, so uh, I've done a series of films. I was going to do a documentary on John Huston. That was something that uh, he died. But unfortunately, he agreed on doing it, but he died. And uh, there was no possibility, of course, to do it. But uh, no, I, as I said, I, I would have loved to do... Uh, uh, I did a long interview with Tarkovsky, who gave very few interviews. Mm. I would have loved to do Tarkovsky, but for the same reason, uh, I spoke about the, I spoke earlier, uh, I, Kontrolovsky was fine because uh, he spoke French, uh, so it was very easy to do it. Tarkovsky, mm. uh, and also he, I think he was maybe less open to, 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 to do interviews. Yes, yes. Um, so, um, what, what, in terms of like future books, are you, uh, is there anything that you would, you would like to work on in the future? Well, you know, I'm 84. So <laughs> <laughs> My future is limited, so I don't, I don't have any, maybe I will collect a number of interviews very rare mm. that have never, never been published, like uh, interviews with Fritz Lang, with Hawks, uh, Balligan, Lumet, Frankenheimer, all these uh, directors who worked for uh, television before, mm. uh, and also about uh, new directors like uh, Joel Cohen and uh, Tim Burton and uh, Walter Anderson and all, all the great directors, uh, David Lynch, Well, listen. I, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. It was a, it was a real privilege. Your Kubrick on Kubrick book was one of the first books I ever read on on cinema. Thank you very much. I would love to do a book with. I said to Terence Malick, if you one day you you think you you are ready to speak about your work, I would love to do a book about you. Like, of course, because all the American directors that I know know my book on Kubrick. You know they. Everybody, Tarantino knows my book, and the Cohen brothers, and James Gray, and 
and uh, Dr. Anderson, they all know the book because the book on Kubrick has been very popular among filmmakers in America. So that was also a, a possibility for me to, to contact them and to do interviews with them. Mm. But uh, Terence Malik knew it, of course, because he, he loved Kubrick. So mm. I said to him, uh, if you find the time one day you want to speak, I would am ready to do it. But I'm sure you will never do it. Do you, do you think he's become a more sort of e- experimental filmmaker recently? Magic? Yeah. No, I, well, I think that uh, a lot of commercial, not a lot, but a number of commercial directors who apparently are not experimental are very experimental. Mm. I mean, you know, Kubrick told me something very interesting one day after Clockwork Orange, when he was going to shoot Barry Lyndon. He said, you know, about modern art, he said, uh, of course, some, a lot of modern art is original, but is it interesting? Mm. It's a very, very powerful question. You know, I mean, the New York press, for instance, the, the people in the press in New York, they love Andrew Saris, uh, they love, uh, uh, what, uh, what's his name, Andy Warhol. They love Andy Warhol's films, like Sleep. They thought they were tremendously uh, innovative. And they did not like Barry Lyndon. And uh, who looks at sleep now? I mean, who is interested to look at six hours of a man sleeping uh, in a loop, uh, 20 minutes in a loop for six hours of a man sleeping? They thought it was brilliantly original. And Barry Lyndon was very academic, with beautiful lighting, beautiful portraits. I mean, who would now dare to compare and he will all sleep with Barry Lyndon. I mean, Barry Lyndon is a masterpiece, uh, admired by every filmmaker, you know? Mm. Uh, so the originality is not always, as Kubrick said, is it interesting? That's the main question. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, thank, thank you, Michelle, so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Exactly. Thank oh. you very much. So that was my conversation with Michelle. I hope it. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a true honour to speak to someone who has been so important in the world of film criticism. Uh, I, I a, a genuine, a genuine honour. And uh, this was the guy who, you know, he wrote the book on so many filmmakers, and they were the first. Some of them were the first books that I ever read. Um, on film Uh, his Stanley Kubrick film uh, sorry his Stanley Kubrick book was was um, you know I must have read that five or six times I I read that before I watched most of Stanley Kubrick films I I, I definitely read about Barry Lyndon and about A Clockwork Orange uh, long before I saw those films and it was from uh, Michel Simon's book so i'm so grateful for him uh appearing on the podcast it was uh it was it was lovely of him to to do that and to speak so interestingly and honestly to me all that's left is to thank elliot atkins for the music ali howard for the artwork and thank you uh listener for uh, for taking your time uh to listen to to this once more and uh until next week Please take care. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.